Our first lesson comes from Exodus chapter 18. It comes at a time when Moses, as leader of Israel, was trying to settle every dispute and case that came up among this nation of roughly two million people all by himself. And when his father-in-law Jethro saw this for the first time, he said, this is bad. This is bad for you and this is bad for the people. You can't do everything. You've got to learn how to delegate. And so he gave this good and practical advice Not just that Moses needed some help, but that he needed a particular kind of help. He needed men of faith and men of integrity. This is Exodus 18, beginning at verse 17. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, But have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Our sermon is based on 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So there was a study done, and it was published in the Harvard Business Review a while back. It was called, What Science Tells Us 
about leadership potential. The goal was to figure out the secret of successful leadership. And they started by identifying a couple of problems in the workplace that only 30% of Americans feel engaged with their work. And globally, 82% of employees don't trust their boss. And 50% of employees quit their jobs because they don't like their managers, which the authors attribute to the fact that somewhere between 30 and 60% of leaders act destructively. Now, why is this? Why is there this sense of dissatisfaction with leaders? Now, the easy answer would be just to say, well, that's a symptom of living in a fallen world. Maybe there's just no escaping it. Conflict with your boss and dissatisfaction with work. But I think we can put a finer point on it than, than that. And maybe you've experienced this in your own life, in your workplace, when upper management promotes the exact wrong person. Or when the person you think would do a good job ends up creating a toxic work environment. Or once they get a little bit of authority, they show you who they really are. Why is it that this keeps happening? Why is it that this is a common experience for all of us? That people just seem to get promoted beyond their abilities, beyond what they really deserve, to positions of leadership when they really shouldn't. Well, here are a couple of conclusions from the study. One thing they said was that part of the problem is that many widely held beliefs about leadership are incongruent with scientific evidence. So in other words... They keep putting out all these studies and people aren't reading them. And the best leaders show higher levels of integrity. I don't think that surprises anybody. Narcissistic leaders are more prone to behaving in unethical ways. So apparently integrity matters a whole lot more than people seem to think. And this is the one that I think is the most telling. They said that it's not the absence of bright side qualities, but rather their coexistence with dark side tendencies that make leaders derail. So in other words, you could take a whole list of all the things you're looking for in a leader and you could find someone that checks every single box and they still might be a bad choice. So one of the takeaways I think we can get from this paper is that we can probably stop doing research on this kind of stuff. None of this is groundbreaking, right? We know what we need to know. We knew all of this that one of the first tests, if not the first test of leadership, ought to be character. Here's some other things that you certainly know. That human beings have a tendency to believe things that just aren't true, regardless of however much evidence you can present to them to the contrary. A tendency to focus on the wrong things, to place an inordinate amount of trust in people for the wrong reasons, and to assign value to skills and characteristics based on personal preferences and biases rather than what we know to be actually valuable. This is true in business. It's true in politics. It's true in personal relationships. And so it should not come as a surprise to us that this is also a weakness that we're prone to when choosing our spiritual leaders. And so Paul lays out some guidelines. He says, this is how you'll choose. But in the church, we're not talking about profits and job satisfaction. We're talking about salvation. We are talking about the body of believers that God has gathered together into this place to support each other, to walk with each other towards heaven, to bring this message of, of what he has done for us out to a world that desperately needs to hear it. So we got to say the stakes are just too high not to pay attention to what he's saying. 
the stakes are too high to just follow our guts. So what kind of a person should a pastor be? And who should you listen to? Who should be your pastor? Now, the reason this came up in 1 Timothy is that it seems like the church in Ephesus had reached this crucial tipping point, or maybe they soon would reach it, the same one that Moses had reached. He needed helpers. He needed people that would be capable, that needed to fear God. They needed to be trustworthy. The requirements that Moses needed are the same as in the church in Ephesus. We need leaders who love the Lord, who are convicted of their own sin, who are amazed that they're forgiven, and amazed a little bit each day that they would be chosen to lead anybody. And these are just the assumed qualifications. Paul doesn't even mention any of that stuff. He assumes those things, and then he moves on to the specific about the things that are going to be required for people to serve in the church the things that they will do to fight against the flesh for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the people they serve. And he gave a fairly detailed list. And perhaps not surprisingly, he tends to focus on on things that are almost exclusively about character. And he starts with this summary statement. He said, now the overseer is to be above reproach. Now first let me tell you what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean above sin. Because if it did, we wouldn't have any pastors at all. And none of us would be able to serve in any capacity. The word itself really just means nothing to take hold upon. That is, there is nothing in his life that Satan or anyone else could grab onto to criticize or attack the church. That his life is not open to criticism that would keep people from trusting him, from listening to him, from accepting correction and instruction from him. And ultimately, anything that would put a barrier between people And Jesus, the primary concern with this is not the reputation of the man or even the reputation of the church. Primarily, it's about the reputation of our Savior. So we can see this as the heading, and what follows is 13 things, 13 statements about what our Lord requires about those who would lead in His church. First up, He says, He must be faithful to His wife. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that He has to be married, but if He is, He has to be what Paul calls a one-woman man. Now let me ask you, do you think it's just random happenstance that this ends up first on the list? People have left their churches. People have walked away from their faith after spiritual leaders have gotten caught up in affairs and scandals. And so God, through Paul, puts marital faithfulness right at the beginning so that when you hear about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to his bride, that there would be nothing that would distract you from the beauty of it that everything that Jesus does is with you in mind. Everything that Jesus does is for you. He also says that an overseer should be temperate, self-controlled, and respectable. Now, we could talk about those things individually, but but they really all have to do with personal characteristics, self-restraint, and tact. He's careful in his thinking. He's careful in his personal choices. He's careful in the way he speaks to people and presents himself to people because he sees himself as one who is under the authority of another. He's under the authority of the Lord. So there are things that he's going to do and there are things that he will not do. And that's the next six things. Two positives and then four negatives. Here are the positives. Hospitable and able to teach. Hospitable is a, is a Greek compound word that really just means lover of strangers. So it's the opposite of xenophobic. So 
The leader in the church is going to be someone who loves strangers, someone who loves those who are different, loves those who are unknown to him. And he's also able to teach. And it's noteworthy that that is the only thing among all these qualifications that we could say strictly falls within the realm of a professional ability. Someone who has been taught by God, someone who possesses knowledge of him and of his word and is able to impart it to others at the right time. And in our context, we would say in sermons, in counseling, in visits, whenever the opportunities arise. And Paul had actually more to say about this when he wrote to Titus. He said he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now, you can't do that if you didn't learn it and if you don't study it regularly and faithfully. So it's not just about the ability to teach. Even in this one professional characteristic, there is a personal characteristic. Someone who would grab on to the truth and never let go. There was an old theologian who said this a slightly different way. He said a pastor ought to have two voices, one to gather the sheep and one to ward off the wolves. And you can't do that if you can't teach. So now Paul follows that up with the four negatives, the things that would actually disqualify a pastor. He's not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Now maybe these don't need a lot of explanation for you. Maybe you don't need me to convince you. There are people that I wouldn't lend my car to. There are people that I wouldn't trust with a key to my house. There are people that I wouldn't ask to watch my kids. It doesn't mean I don't love them. It doesn't mean they're not forgiven of whatever things that they've done wrong. But you just don't take someone who doesn't know how to swim and make them a lifeguard. That's not good for anybody. And so if there is a particular temptation that simply cannot be resisted, and here he offers these examples, alcohol abuse, violence, conflict or anger, greed, we could make the list longer than that, but, but we can stop there. God does not allow us to set someone up for failure and public disgrace and to bring real and lasting harm on the church, on himself, and on God's precious redeemed children. No matter how loving it may seem to us to give someone another chance, God says no. And Paul then actually gives us a way to test someone, a way to look at the leadership positions already in his life to see how he might do with it. He says he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Now think of managers in a business, like the ones who act destructively and lead their employees to quit. If you knew that that's how someone treated their own family, would you put them in charge of anything? The word manage carries with it a sense of leading, but also a sense of care. When Paul asked, how can he care for God's church, he used the exact same word that the Good Samaritan used when he picked up that injured man off the side of the road and he took him to an inn and he paid for everything he needed and he said to the innkeeper, take care of him for me. And so Paul says, look at a man's family and see how he takes care of them and it's going to tell you something about how he would take care of God's family. And you would better believe that this is something that God takes seriously. And so in these final two characteristics, these final two qualifications, they come with a warning. 
Not with a warning of what God's going to do if we don't listen to him, but a warning of what we might do to ourselves if we don't listen. Because we're not just talking about things that would make a man unfit for leadership, but things that could actually lead him to be unfit for salvation. He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So on the one hand, we're talking about someone who's in the church, in the faith, but maybe hasn't been for very long. And then on the other hand, maybe someone who has been for a long time, but who has a bad reputation with those outside, or maybe even no reputation at all. He doesn't know anyone outside of the church. Both instances, we're talking about a particular danger, an opportunity for Satan to attack. Now, this is nothing against someone who is new to the faith. Paul loved recent converts. In fact, he made it his entire ministry about making more and more new converts. But there is a special danger in being put into a position of leadership. And I want you to think about it. Think about the risk that I take every time I stand up here. I'm not talking about the risk of losing my place in my sermon or tripping over my shoelace or, or any of the other thousand ways I might embarrass myself up here. Actually, the opposite is the greater risk. The danger of doing a really great job. The danger of being impressive and beloved. Now, maybe in my case, that's not a huge risk. That's fine. But, but the fact is that the, the temptation is always there. The temptation to to seek it, to chase after it, to fish for compliments, to compare myself to your other pastors, to give you what I think that you want as opposed to what God tells me that you actually need, to offer you the gift of myself rather than the gifts of God. There was a time that Martin Luther preached a sermon it must have been a particularly good one because after the service, one of his members came up to him and was just praising him up and down for how wonderful this sermon was. And Luther's comment was something like, well, that's funny. That's the exact same thing that Satan was whispering in my ear as I came down from the pulpit. Satan knows that he can't defeat Jesus. And so he'll come after pastors because he's seen it before. If he can take down a pastor, he may be able to take down some of you with him. And maybe he can split a church. Maybe he could take an entire congregation off its mission. And you know how he does it? He does it with pride. There are few things that can poison a congregation more effectively than an arrogant pastor. And that arrogance, that conceit can actually put him under the same judgment that the devil is under. Because pride is what took him down. Pride is what convinced the devil that he shouldn't be satisfied with his position of servant leadership, that he might be better off on his own. And so this is a requirement that's really less about how long someone has been a Christian and more about how susceptible they may be to pride. And it's a warning not to rush anyone into a position of leadership and authority to guard against accepting zeal and charisma in place of faithfulness and steadiness because pride is just that dangerous and it's that sneaky and it's that deceptive. And so the divine command given later in this chapter, this is in verse 10, specifically about deacons, but certainly about every spiritual leader is they must first be tested. And so then the final qualification to look for in an overseer 
is that he would have a good reputation with outsiders. Now, outsiders isn't some kind of a dirty word. It's not meant with any sort of negative connotation. It's a word that's commonly used in the Bible to describe those who are outside of the church, outside of the faith. And Satan would absolutely love it if our pastors, if our church appeared hateful and exclusive and reclusive. But God actually calls us to show the world that living for him is a joy and not a burden. And we can't do that if we don't know people outside of the church. And wouldn't it be wonderful if without condoning sin or excusing it or ignoring it, that anyone who wanted to know more about Jesus would know that they could walk in here and they wouldn't be viewed as an enemy. There you have it. A list of 13 qualifications. And it's a long one, this, this description of the overseer who is above reproach. And there's one commentator I read who said that it's remarkable for being unremarkable. And I, I kind of agree with it. I know what he's getting at. That if we were to get together and come up with a list, if we were looking for a new pastor and we all decided together what we definitely wanted him to be and what we definitely didn't want him to be, we might come up with a list on our own, something like this. Maybe we don't need Paul at all. And it's true that in a sense, what we're looking for in pastors is just describing what we want in the life of every Christian. We want ordinary healthy Christianity, a trust in Jesus that is evident in what they say and in what they do. But I can't really leave you letting you think that this is a small thing, that this is unremarkable, that it's ordinary, that anybody can or should do this, that we should just listen to anybody who has a pulpit, or that we should bend on right teaching or a right life for someone we like. This is not a small thing. Because to see this as a low bar would be to suggest that Jesus would leave his throne in heaven and be subjected to a life of temptation and suffering that ended in physical and spiritual torture so that he could spare you the wrath of God and spare himself the loss of you forever. And then rise from the grave proving that death has nothing to say to you and then preserve his word through the church built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets through whom he brought that word to you. He brought it to you over the centuries and he made it effective in your heart. And through it and through the waters of baptism, he brought you into his own household. And after all of that, to believe that he would just hand over the care of your soul to any old person who wants the job. I think you know him better than that. This is about what he is continuing to do for you, to instruct you, to protect you, to encourage you, to guard you, to guide you on your walk with Jesus, to forgive your sins, to shepherd you through this life until you receive what is promised, the salvation of your souls and the gift of eternal life. So choose your leaders carefully because you are just too valuable to Jesus. You cost too much not to be watched over carefully. And I also recognize that as soon as I say that, I run the risk of sounding like I'm trying to promote myself. Paul calls this a noble task, and maybe that means I have some nobility that I bring to the table. And because I'm a sinner, I have to be honest about that, and I have to reflect on that, and I have to confess the times that I have made this about me. But then on the other hand, I have a sense of another risk, that as I lift up these requirements for godliness for spiritual leaders, 
that maybe those who know me best or maybe those who know me just a little bit might perceive an ever-widening gap between what this noble task requires and this miserable sinner who aspires to it. And so we've got these two truths. That pastors play a crucial role in, in the care of your soul, but we also know we're not the main event. And so one way that we can hold these two truths together is to think of him like the best man at a wedding. Maybe not a modern wedding, but in, in Jewish tradition, there is a role in the wedding called a soshben. It's something like a combination of a best man and a wedding planner. It's a position of high honor, one whom the, the groom trusts. And the main responsibility is to bring the bride and the groom together as smoothly as possible. And after the ceremony and after the celebrations, there's one last duty. His final job is to stand watch outside the bride's wedding chamber until the groom arrives. And when they are safely together, just to go away. To go away rejoicing. This is the picture that was in people's minds at the end of John the Baptist's ministry. When Jesus came and all his disciples were getting up and leaving to follow after Jesus, people actually thought John should be upset about this. And this is what John said. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Now, there aren't many clearer examples of humble spiritual leadership than John the Baptist. This is what it looks like to be above reproach. No one could accuse him of wanting something other than what Jesus wanted. Or that he would ever let anything in his life stand in the way of, of bringing together the bride and the bridegroom. Yes, it is a high standard. To be a servant in God's house, there are expectations for behavior and character. Because to God, you're just too important for it to be otherwise. But he doesn't leave this to any of us to do on our own. Paul wrote about this in another letter, this one to a church in Corinth. He said, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So he counts all of us as having died, so that now we live a borrowed life, sharing the life of him who died and rose again, so that now we can live for him and live for each other. And so Paul goes, goes back to this, he reminds Timothy once again at the end of the chapter, what all of this is really about. This is the end of 1 Timothy 3. It's the exact center of the book. He explains why he wrote this chapter and why he wrote this letter. He said, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. I'm going to cut it off right in the middle of that sentence to talk about this word godliness. 
Now, usually when we talk about the word godliness, we're talking about morality. And maybe if we were asked to define it, we might come up with something similar to what Paul says in his description of above reproach. But Paul is reminding Timothy whose house it is that we are serving in and what it is that makes us godly, not our behavior, but our Savior. And so what follows is not a list of 13 things that we do for him or don't do for him. It's a list of six things that he did for us. The first thing is referring to Jesus' resurrection. Here's what Paul wrote. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up into glory. This is our confession of Christ. This is the great mystery from which true godliness springs. It's not a mystery as if we couldn't know it. It's a mystery because we couldn't know it if Jesus hadn't told us. Godliness isn't simply a set of good behaviors. Godliness is having God. It's having a relationship with Him. It's looking to Him for everything, for wisdom in life, for competence in service, for strength against temptation, for certainty in death. And on our first lesson today, we looked at Exodus 18. It was Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who gave him that really good bit of advice to delegate his work to trustworthy, competent men. And this is the last part of what Jethro said. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. So no matter what we do, no matter what good advice we follow, it all depends on God. And that point was made in a really simple way by an old preacher named Charles Spurgeon. He was an old uh, Baptist minister in the 1800s. And one time someone asked him about the secret of his successful ministry. You know what he said? My people pray for me. So this is what I'm asking of you. Pray for me. Pray for Pastor Hine. Pray for Pastor Lyra. Pray for Pastor Kelly. Pray for all of your servant leaders. And I know that seems a little bit self-serving, and it is in a way, but we need God's grace and we need your prayers that we would rightly handle his word, that we would rightly use the authority he gives us, that Jesus would keep us strong against temptation, that this ministry would remain free from scandal and disgrace. Pray that we would see evidence of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us and in your lives. Pray for our families, pray for our faith, pray for our health. And by the way, these are prayers that serve you too. Pray and trust that God will answer and that he'll bless all of us through this noble task. That's what Paul calls it, a noble task. Harold Stankbale was an, another pastor. He was a pastor for 50-some years, Lutheran pastor. He wrote this book about pastoring for pastors, and he writes this bit on behalf of all pastors. He says, what could be more noble than to be an emissary of the Lord of life, to sow life and hope in the midst of death and despair? But the Lord is the noble one, not us. Our nobility comes from the fact that we serve a noble Lord. And the office we bear and the privilege that is ours in serving the lambs and sheep of Christ, we are actually serving Jesus himself. It is simultaneously a humbling prospect and a wondrous honor. May God bless it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, provide your people with faithful servants who will guard them, 
encourage them, instruct them, and lavish them with the gifts that come from you. All to your glory. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.